Pachango. Alright, I'm back with another ill-advised, off-the-cuff, well, it's not really off-the-cuff, I've thought about this one a bit, but let's call this part two of the um, Andrew Tate mess that I created, apparently, with the first part of this that I put out a few days ago. It's not really a mess, uh, it's good, because it's um, it's created a lot of conversation, there's an active thread going on in Reddit about it. I've gotten a bunch of emails. Uh, I see lots of uh, comments on Substack about this. Some of um, I've I've engaged with all of these, um, and many of the people I've engaged with, I said I'll deal with it in a podcast, and um, so I don't have to spend a lot of time writing things out. And uh, I'll also be communicating with the people who didn't write emails or comments or whatever. So maybe that means you. Okay. So here's the thing. I never heard of Andrew Tate until recently. I'm 61 fucking years old. I don't have TikTok. I don't, I don't watch OnlyFans. Um, so I'm looking at this from a perspective of, okay, who is this guy? I hear he's a douchebag. Uh, I've, I've seen him, you know, and here and there, whatever. And yeah, he seems like a type um, of person who, who annoys the fuck out of me. But as part of the discipline of not reflexively ref- uh, rejecting people or arguments or ideas that annoy me, I decided to watch this interview that he did with uh, Piers Morgan, who's another guy who annoys me. And, you know, this is the same sort of discipline I've talked about before when um, I've talked about, you know, try to argue the opposite point of what you believe, just to see what's there. Uh, this is a, an integral part of the scientific process and of any kind of um, serious intellectual pursuit. You know, like when I was writing Sex at Dawn, one of the, or researching Sex at Dawn, one of the, the things I did pretty regularly was say, okay, well, what are other possible explanations for this behavior? What are the weak points in my argument? If I were arguing against this perspective that I'm, that I'm trying to set forth in this book, what would I attack? You know, what are the weak points in my knowledge? What, what question could I get, um, that would leave me blank, um, or that I wouldn't be able to answer or that I maybe even wouldn't even be able to understand. So I don't think it's problematic to question our assumptions and our beliefs. I think it's necessary. I think it's really important. And sometimes that means that you uh, (laughs) turn on a fucking Andrew Tate video, I guess. Anyway, so 
Um, the comments and and the the sort of response I've gotten uh, to this part of it has been good for you. Uh, you know, it takes some balls to to come out and say things that you know are going to piss people off and potentially lose audience and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, uh, I guess the other major uh, line has been like, uh, yeah, okay. Maybe Andrew Tate says some things that are not totally bullshit, but he is a piece of shit and therefore we shouldn't pay attention to him. I'll I'll just read from one of the very thoughtful uh, emails that I've received. This is from uh, David, I think. Yeah, David. Uh, he says, okay, so I'm, I'm jumping a little bit. Um, but he says, um, I have no problem that Tate might be right about some things like Trump or the Nixium guy can be right about many things. I have no doubt that they can put together a decent interview on Piers Morgan, but this seems beside the point. The point being that these people are not trustworthy and are disingenuous. So, David is saying, okay, it's not about the content, it's about the person. It's not about the art, it's about the artist, to extend it a little bit. Um, He says that, I. uh, why does it matter if Tate says some things that are right? I agree that we're living in an unwell culture, that is extremely split and black and white. And maybe your point is to say that we need to practice flexibility and take and leave certain things from people to have nuanced takes on people. But my assessment on Tate is that he really seems to be like a disingenuous, manipulative person and at worst, a psychopathic narcissist. And in this case, it's wise to throw the baby out with the bathwater and write him off. I think a vulnerable, lost man or teenager could easily be swept up in his charisma and led astray. Okay, so that's the main argument, I would say, um, in in response to what I said in the last Roma. And I, I think that's a legitimate perspective, and I, I think it deserves to be taken seriously. Um, but I come down on in a slightly different place, and I'll try to explain why. First of all, I think that there is a cycle that happens um, that we're seeing happening more and more. We're, we're sort of in a in an age that may even be defined by this cycle. So let me explain what I mean. I think the cycle has five steps. And I just came up with this this morning, so uh, this, this is open to... Uh, all sorts of um, rejoinders and, and adjustments and whatever. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't in stone. This is just something I thought of this morning. So the cycle is basically step number one. With the intention of making the world better, we're told to deny obvious reality. So for example, race doesn't exist. Men and women are exactly the same. Uh, gender is purely a social construct. Trans women are women. 
Um, it's not too late to stop climate change. Uh, we, in fact, uh, capitalism will help us buy our way out of global collapse. So these are all things to me, and I think to most people, that require a denial of obvious reality in order to participate in this well-intentioned drive for a better world. Race doesn't exist. Well, look, race either exists or it doesn't exist. If race doesn't exist, how can racism exist? But the same people who are insisting that race doesn't exist are arguing that we need to make major changes, pay reparations for historical wrongs that were based upon race. We need to, um, you know, keep affirmative action, which is bias and discrimination uh, meant to address historical racial inequalities and so on. Well, wait, if race doesn't exist, how can racism exist and why do we need to be thinking in terms of race if race isn't real? I, it, does, it just doesn't make sense. It's intellectually vacuous. I think race does exist. I think it's complex. I think it needs to be defined. I think certainly it can't be defined purely on the color of one's skin. As I've said many times on this podcast, to say Obama's the first black president, well, what the hell does that mean? The dude's half white and he was raised by white people in a white community. And he had mostly white friends. Why is he black? Because his dad, who he rarely saw, is from Africa. Okay, I don't get it. That doesn't really make sense. There are lots of things that don't make sense. I've told the story on this podcast before about how, you know, my understanding is that a species is defined as a group of animals that can mate and have fertile offspring. And something is a different species when it cannot mate with a, something outside of that species and have fertile offspring. So, Horses and cows are different species because if a horse mates with a cow, nothing happens, I think. Or if it does, it will be infertile, so those things won't persist. Anyway, that's the scientific definition of species, or at least it was 20 years ago when I last looked it up. And one time I was talking to Franz Duvall, the primatologist. We were talking about bonobos and chimps. And I said, can bonobos and chimps mate? And he said, I think they can. Yes, they have. And I said, well, then why are they different species? Like, what is a species? And he paused for a long time and he said, never ask a biologist to define species. <laughs> I mean, I think that is the situation in many parts of life. We pretend we know things. We pretend we know what certain words mean, you know, but it's like money. We're all pretending it's valuable, so therefore it's valuable. But once you say, wait a minute, a hundred dollar bill is really just a piece of paper, then your mind starts to shut down because like, yeah, it is, but it isn't. It's, you know, it's like the particle wave thing in, in physics. It's a particle. It's a wave. It's eh, maybe both, maybe neither. We don't really know. It's outside our capacity to understand. So there's a, a certain amount of intellectual humility that's necessary to actually acknowledge that 
There are things beyond our capacities to define them, but they still exist. So race, what is race? There are genetic differences between people of African origin ancestrally, not someone whose parents moved to Africa before they were born, but people whose ancestors have been in Africa for thousands and thousands of years and someone whose ancestors have been in Ireland for thousands and thousands of years. There are genetic differences. That's obvious, right? Look at our skin, look at our hair, look at our eye color, and those genetic differences go beyond the visible. There are different propensities to get particular diseases that are genetically modified, like sickle cell anemia, for example. So these genetic differences extend into health, they extend into the function of organs, they extend into musculature. It's simply a fact that the fastest sprinters in the world are black. That's not a coincidence. It's not based on poverty. It's not based on cultural, um, you know, nutrition or parenting or any of that. It's based on DNA. Uh, you know, that's, there are physiological differences. Um, you know, the average Dutch person is, is just taller. Uh, maybe that's not a good example because the Dutch aren't a race per se, but maybe they are. That's the point. We don't really know what a race is, but we do know that there are constellations of characteristics that occur more frequently in people whose ancestors come from one part of the world versus another part of the world. And that this is based on evolutionary factors that have been at play for hundreds and hundreds of generations. That's not racism to acknowledge that. At least I don't think so. But there are people out there who would say that what I've just said is racist. Simply because I'm acknowledging that there are differences. And these differences may play out in averages. They may play out in unexpected ways among individuals. So this is not saying that every black person is faster in a sprint than every white person. Of course not. But it is acknowledging that, and I I don't know this, uh, but I'm going to say off the top of my head, I'll bet, you know, of the 50 fastest men in the world of running the 100 meter dash, way more than half of them are black. Uh, Black people are way overrepresented in that group. Uh, statistically based upon global population. That's not racist. That's acknowledging the obvious. Men and women are not the same. It doesn't mean men are better than women or women are better than men, though it does mean that in certain specific tasks or areas or skills, Men will be better than women. Men will be physically stronger than women in the aggregate. If you need somebody to carry 50 pounds up 10 flights of stairs, it's probably going to be a man who's going to be able to do it faster. That's not sexism to say that. 
It's not sexism to say that women are going to be better at many skills, maybe psychotherapy, for example, than men are. In terms of research, it seems to show that women are much better at picking up nonverbal cues than men are. They're more attentive to these sorts of things. Women have a better sense of smell than men do. That's just factual. So to say, no, men and women are the same, ah, that's nonsense. And a lot of people can see that that's nonsense. So that brings us to number two, the attempt to silence and shame anyone who questions this narrative. So you fire any professor who says, well, there may be innate differences between boys and girls in terms of mathematical skills. Like Larry Summers apparently said that. Uh, he was the president of Harvard. I remember, I don't know if it was 10, 15 years ago, he made that argument of suggested it in a, in a talk he was giving and suddenly there was this huge brouhaha and he was kicked out of Harvard. He was no longer president of Harvard. Uh, well, first of all, that may well be true. There's research that seems to suggest that. And secondly, why do you get fired for just saying something that may or may not be true? Why is that a firing offense? Well, it's because it questions the narrative. And this narrative must not be questioned because we're trying to make the world a better place and it can't become a better place if you're dragging your feet or you're, you're fucking up our narrative. So you've got a deplatform, you've got a cancel, you've got to silence anyone who becomes a threat to the narrative. Now, I acknowledge that this is nuanced and complicated, and when you get into things like anti-vax and questioning scientific narratives around COVID, this gets really fucking complicated because there's an argument to be made that you know from the the vax perspective we need we need 95% of people to take this vaccine or we're all fucked and when you come out and say hey these vaccines are causing autism or these vaccines have, are not tested properly or these vaccines i don't know i i hear they cause heart disease in young men or whatever you are putting us all at risk <laughs> I understand that argument and I'm sympathetic to it. That's a that's a legitimate argument, but it's also legitimate to say uh this stuff hasn't been tested. I don't know that I want to take it. Uh I don't think it's legitimate to say you know to fire people who don't want to take a vaccine and who are suspicious about the science behind it because we have reason to suspect that Big Pharma is more interested in their bottom line than in our health. Uh, we've got a hundred years of experience to show uh, that that's the case with Big Pharma and Big Food and Big Industry of all sorts. So when BP says, "Oh, we're you know we're the green energy company," there's a lot of reason to say, "Fuck you, BP. You're full of shit. You've been lying to us about how you're looking out for us forever." Archer Daniels Midland, we feed the world. No, you don't. You genetically engineer crops and spray pesticides all over the place, poisoning people, causing cancer, destroying aquifers and ecosystems so that you can make more money. You're not feeding the world because you're looking out for us. There is a lot of reason to be extremely suspicious and skeptical 
of what's being put out by huge corporations. So I'm sympathetic to both points of view there. Uh, and it, it's, it's very complicated when we're talking about COVID and things like that. Um, but as far as these narratives of race and, and sex and gender, um, I think it's a little, for me anyway, it's easier to know where I come down on this. Number three. So number one is deny obvious reality. Number two is insist that everyone agree or at least shut the fuck up if they disagree. Number three is control acceptable language. And this is part of that, of number two, of, of controlling the narrative and what people can say. So you force the use of whatever pronoun somebody wants you to use and you force uh, at least the show of respect for whatever identity people claim. You do things like say, you can't say Latino or Latina anymore. You have to say Latinx. Uh, why? Why do I have to say Latinx? That's fucking stupid. And you're white. So what's going on here? Why are you trying to control my language? Go read Orwell on this. 1984 or Huxley, Brave New World, both of them talked about how controlling language is the first step in controlling thought. And so that's what's going on there. We have to use the N-word. We have to use the C-word. But not the thing that the N-word and the C-word refer to. No, no, we have to talk about people with vaginas, not women. We need to talk about non-men. I read a thing recently in Johns Hopkins uh, University. They published something about that they weren't using the word women anymore. They were referring to these humans as non-men. What the fuck? Non-men? So you think it's a step up to refer to women as what they aren't? <laughs> How is that not sexist? Oh, fuck. Okay, number four. So after you've denied obvious reality, silenced or shame anyone who questions your, your narrative, take control of language so people can be canceled for, you know, not signing on to Latinx or whatever. Number four, this creates an incentive and a, a huge market for anyone who's willing to speak the forbidden truths. Right? Because the fact is that people see what they see. I mean, people, I was going to say people aren't idiots. A lot of people are idiots, but even the idiots see what's in front of them. And what they see is that there is something happening here and nobody's talking about it. And anytime someone tries to talk about it, they get shut down. And so I feel alone and lost and disrespected and ignored. Am I going crazy? Am I the only one who sees this shit? And then if you hear someone who's describing what you're seeing, suddenly you're like, oh my God, thank God, somebody sees this. Somebody is talking about this. And that creates a deep allegiance 
with that person. Almost a like a almost a psychosexual connection, right? Because somebody is describing the world that I see. Thank God. That's a major connection with that person. So before we talk that about that more, let's go to number five. Who are these people who say these forbidden things? What kind of people step into that role? Well, first of all, they're risk takers, right? Because that's very risky to stand up and say, no, no, men and women aren't the same. No, trans women aren't the same as people who were born little girls and grew up in that body. Right? The, the, or they're either risk takers because, and they just don't give a fuck, or they're insulated somehow. One way of being insulated is through wealth. Donald Trump, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, what's her name? The woman who wrote the Harry Potter series. They're insulated by huge wealth. So they're in a position to say these forbidden things because they don't give a shit. What are you going to do? I got a hundred million dollars. What are you going to do? Cancel me? Who gives a shit? Um, you know, what did she say? She said, trans women are not the same as biological women. I wish them no ill. I, I think their rights should be protected. They should receive every legal protection that everyone else receives. But I don't think a trans woman should go to a woman's prison. Especially a man who was a rapist who then transitions while in detention and now we have to send him to a woman's prison? That makes no sense. You're sending a fucking guy with a dick who's calling himself a woman to a woman's prison. A rapist, no less. Uh, I, you know, that's what she's, she's called a transphobe for saying things like that. I highly recommend, by the way, that podcast, The, the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, I think it's called. It's like a five or six part series. Fantastic, really interesting and well done podcast. Um, about that situation and about what she said and, and the way people reacted to it and all that. And see, the thing is, again, this gets us back to number one. And it's important to remember this. The intention is to make the world a better place. That's the intention. But that was the intention of Lenin. That was the intention of Mao. That was the intention of Pol Pot. And if you don't know who those people were, check it out. Utopianism is a very dangerous motivation because if you truly believe that you're making the world a better place, you can justify all kinds of horrible things. I mean, did Hitler think he was making the world a better place? I think he did. Right? So if you're 100% certain that 
certain things need to be done and that's going to bring peace on earth and you're fighting the last war and you just need to eliminate these evil Jews or these homosexuals or the gypsies or whoever it is that's fucking everything up. And if we got rid of them, everything would be great. The immigrants or the gays or whoever your, your contaminant is, we just need to cleanse the world of this contaminant and then we'll all be happy and free forever. Well, okay, that's a necessary sacrifice that some people are going to have to make. Well, once you start thinking that way, then all sorts of barbarism becomes acceptable to you. As long as you're the one inflicting it, your side is inflicting it. There's a fantastic article I read, uh, which I will link to. It was in New York Magazine. Let me see if I still have it up here. Um, yeah, it's called Tate Pilled, What a Generation of Boys Have Found in Andrew Tate's Extreme Male Gospel, and it's by Lisa Miller. And uh, it's a really interesting article about where this guy came from, his background, uh, his appeal, how the whole sort of internet explosion happened with him and his business thing where he's got the women on OnlyFans, you know, making money and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating article and, and I learned a lot reading it, but there's a particular line um, and, and she's talking about why these boys are, are ripe for someone like Andrew Tate these teenage boys and the things that they're going through. And she is talking to a a high school student named Valerie. And she says, Valerie sees there's maybe some truth to the notion that liberal institutions are, quote, centering female voices, queer voices, unquote. They aren't extending sufficient compassion to boys. Quote, the message is, Let these other people talk. You've had your time, Valerie says. And probably the boys think, but I haven't had my time. I was just born. I was just going through puberty yesterday. Adolescence is hard, she acknowledges. Emotions are high and it's easy to feel alone. Then she quotes Valerie. She says, to feel that way and then to hear, your voice is not relevant to this conversation. Well, I can imagine how young straight boys feel more isolated than they used to. Quote, Valerie pauses. Quote, but the change is a net positive. I'm maybe not that sympathetic. Unquote. So Valerie gets it. Okay, Valerie says, okay, I get it. These straight boys in my class are being told to shut up you cis men have had your time to talk. Now you shut up. And these boys are saying, wait a minute, I'm 16 years old. I haven't had my time to talk. I, what are you talking about? Right? They're being neutralized for imbalances that existed before they were alive. Similar to current white people being told to pay reparations to currently alive black people for things that happened five generations ago, how is that fair? That creates a problem. It's the same dynamic. 
But listen to what she says. It's so interesting. She acknowledges that these boys have a right to feel outrage at this, that they're being cheated, they're being fucked over. I can, she says, I can imagine how young straight boys feel more isolated than they used to because of this shit, right? But then here's the thing. She pauses, but the change is a net positive. Maybe I'm not that sympathetic. So if you believe it's a net positive, then you feel justified in the victimization of a minority that needs to pay up for something that they shouldn't really have to pay for, right? If you believe the gypsies need to be eliminated, then you eliminate them because it makes the world better for the rest of us. If you believe the Palestinians need to be driven into ghettos, look up the word ghetto, very interesting, came from what was done to the Jews. Now the Jews are doing, or at least the Israelis are doing it to the Palestinians. But you believe that's necessary because they're dirty, they're inferior, they're violent by nature, they're unreasonable. Well, what are you going to do? You got to just drive them into these horrible zones and keep them there. Surround them with barbed wire and soldiers and fuck it, that's what we need to do. If you think that way, all sorts of horrible shit becomes possible for you. So, those are the five stages that I identified. Deny obvious reality, silence or shame anyone who questions that, control acceptable language, and then you see these people come in to this vacuum that's been created by this, who speak the truth, the the wealthy, the invulnerable, the risk takers, the nihilists, and also comedians, right? Because that's what they do. Comedians say, at least there's a large tradition in American comedy, saying what you can't say. It goes back to Lenny Bruce and Mark Twain before that. That's why it's the Mark Twain prize in comedy. Um, podcasters, because they have a direct uh, connection to the audience, right? I, I always talk about how great podcasting is because there's no company controlling, there's no government controlling what I say. They tried it. They tried deplatforming people who had unacceptable perspectives on um, Patreon, which is why I left Patreon. I wasn't waiting for them to do that to me. Um, and here's the here's the other thing. The wounded, right? Because the wounded need to say what they say. They need to do what they do because they're feeding some some imbalance within them. Um, I watched a video that, that was mentioned in the, that article that I read. On uh, an Andrew Tate video. And it's called fix your mind it's uh, six minutes and 20 seconds and there's nothing in that video that's offensive the video is basically saying it it starts off talking about him when he was a kid and uh why does why do i do this kickboxing why do i work out why do i train so much why do i put myself in these risky difficult situations and 
What he says is, I get bored really quickly. I can't. The the sort of normal life of wait for the weekend and watch a movie and have a girlfriend and, you know, get a dog. Like, that's not enough for me. I get, I just lose my mind with that. I need to be, I need focus. I need stress. I need discipline. I need control, hyper vigilant control in order to not feel like I'm losing my mind. This dude's wounded. This guy's hurt badly. When you see someone screaming about how tough and strong and masculine they are, look into their relationship with their father. Uh, you know, there, there's something, you know, it's, there's, there's the, the phenomenon of the small dog that barks like crazy and the big dog doesn't. The small dog is barking like crazy because that's all he's got is this threat, this, this braggadocio, this look at me, look at my cars, look at my muscles, look at my tattoos, look at my big house, look at my bitches. Look, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the guy who says that shit is a frightened little boy. Because if you're not a frightened little boy, you don't need to say that stuff. You don't need to advertise. You don't need to walk around with your chest puffed out and your fucking 38 special on your holster and your AR-15 in your fucking gun rack in your big truck. You don't need all that stuff. That stuff is unnecessary, ridiculous waste. You need that stuff when you don't have contentment, when you don't have peace, when you don't have self-love, when you don't have the love of your dad or your mom or your culture, where you don't feel that you are respected and acknowledged and valued. So you demand it. You go out there and you buy the symbols of love or respect or power because you feel it missing within yourself. Now, some of you might be saying, Chris, you're a fucking white man. You're a white, upper middle class, highly educated. You know, your your um, privilege is showing all over the place. Okay, acknowledged, admitted. But I would say the most important privilege I have is that my parents loved me when I was a kid. And so I have no drive to prove anything to anybody. And I never have. Some would look at that and say, oh, you're just a fucking lazy bastard who, you know, you were lucky. You wrote one fucking book and it was a bestseller because Dan Savage helped you out and liked what you were saying. And, you know, then you're set for life. Uh, yeah. Okay. Kind of, I guess, I guess. Um, but I think that I think that the privilege of being a white man is is interesting because, okay, you can say white man rule the world. You're a white man. So shut the fuck up. You've got all the advantages. And that's an argument that you hear all the time, right? But it makes me think of the first time I went to India and I've written about this in Civilized to Death, this this sort of like feeling of like, oh my God, I 
just, you know, the cost of my flight here is as much as many of these people will earn in five years. And so, like, I'm suddenly wealthy just because I had enough money to come here. Like, it's a weird kind of mind fuck to, to deal with. But I remember... You know, like a lot of, and, and I experienced this in Tanzania too recently. Maybe that's a better example. I was talking to someone in Tanzania and, um, you know, we, we had just been ripped off. I forget what it was, but it was somebody charged us, you know, 20 times, um, you know, the real price for something. And I was talking to a Tanzanian guy and he was like, look, you got to understand Tanzanians, like we see a, a lot of a lot of us, you know, not all, obviously, um, obviously not the guy I was talking to, but he said a lot of Tanzanians see you white people go to an ATM machine, stick a card in there, press some buttons and a bunch of money comes out. They think that you white people have money machines. And that you just, whenever you need money, you just go to the machine and get money. They don't understand that's coming out of an account with a limited amount of money in it that you had to work to put into it. They think that you just, you know, it's like you go to the river and get some water, right? You go to the money machine and you get some money. That's what they think is happening. So, of course, they rip you off because they think that the money comes to you free, because you've got that card, you just go to the money machine and get money. It's like having a bucket. You go to the river, you get some water. That's how they see it. They don't understand. And so that's the situation of, of the white man, right? Like, okay, white men rule the world. And so you go to a place like India and everybody's like, oh, you're white, you're American or European, you're rich. Well, what if you were raised in a broken down fucking shack in the San Luis Valley by a mother who was on welfare or, you know, disability, getting 600 bucks a month and you got a couple of chickens and you're eating those eggs and you're trying to grow something in the garden and you go to school hungry and you can't afford shoes and you got no running water. There are people living like that in America. There are people living like that five miles from where I'm sitting right now. There are a lot of people living like that in America. And you go to a place like India and everybody thinks you're rich because you're white. Or everyone thinks you're in control because you're a man. Well, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of fucking people in India, hundreds of millions of people in India who had more money than I did when I was there traveling. And yet I'm the rich guy because I'm white. Well, I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of men in particular in America, find themselves. Not only are they struggling and desperate, but they're told to shut the fuck up and their desperation and their struggle are illegitimate because you're a white man and white men have all the advantages. White men rule the world. Yeah, Bill Gates is white. Warren Buffett's white. Tesla guy's white. What's his name? Elon Musk. They're white. They're all white men. 
That doesn't mean that every white man is fucking rich. Just because we're white men doesn't mean that, you know, Bill Gates sends me a check every fucking month. So this kind of sloppy thinking puts people in a very dis difficult position, very desperate position. They're drowning, they're desperate. And when some when you're drowning and desperate, you don't give a shit who throws the rope in. You don't give a shit where the rope leads. When you're starving, you don't ask, you know, you're starving and someone offers you food. You don't say, well, uh, is this organic? You know, um, you know, because canola oil is a real problem. No, that's not how it works. And so these people are desperate. They're afraid. They're ignored. They're dismissed. They're called toxic. And someone comes along and says, fuck that. I'm on your side. Here's what you need to do. You need to take control of your life. You need to stop listening to those people who are telling you you're worthless. You need to respect your body. You need to make some money. You need to acknowledge reality. You, you look at that, that six-minute video of Andrew Tate, Control Your Mind. It's all really good advice. So some people wrote to me and were like, okay, what is it that you agree with? Well, look up that video on YouTube, Control Your Mind. It's good advice. It's coming from a sad, broken man whose father didn't love him, whose father really didn't love him. Uh, and that's what, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you can feel compassion for someone with whom you totally disagree. You can feel compassion for someone who's a danger. And so the problem, okay, let, let's look at some of the things that he says. I, I made a list of valid points that he makes. He says, the matrix disempowers men encourages them or forces them to be obedient rather than to pursue their own individuality and dignity. Social media and shitty jobs keep people tied into a system that drains drains them of their energy and vitality in a way that benefits others. Well, that's true. I agree with that. Uh, the next one, take control of your life, body, and finances. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. I didn't take the time to go find exact quotes, but this is the gist of what he's talking about. Don't be a sucker. Um, he, he says, heartbreak, heartbreak and trauma are necessary struggles of manhood, so stop complaining and deal with it. He says, there are millions of young men out there who just want to grow up, go to the gym, get strong, be respected, have a beautiful girl in a sports car. Yeah, there are. Um, he says that men and women are not the same and that it's okay to have different roles in a relationship. Uh, he says, and this is a quote, women in a relationship with a man belong to that man, unquote. That, that's one that has gotten him in, in a lot of trouble. And he said, look, let me tell you, I'm taking, I'm picking and choosing the good shit. There's a lot of bad shit. There, you know, instead of saying, something that's reasonable sounding like this he's also said things like women are you know are dumb bitches and they don't know how to handle money and you know like there are much worse expressions of these things so what i'm saying is these are points he makes that these teenage boys or these disempowered men can hear and they can say yeah that's true um now i'm not saying women belong to men but i am saying 
there's a large strain of what we call romance that resonates very clearly with that. Oh, can't you see you belong to me? Uh, Baby, you're mine. I want to be your girl. I mean, come on. It's everywhere. It's in every fucking Hollywood movie, songs, novels. It's everywhere. This idea. It's not slavery. We're not talking about slavery. We're not saying you belong to me and I've got the paperwork to show it. We're We're talking about a deep undercurrent in Western romantic tradition in which a woman is, to one degree or another, owned and the responsibility of men, which is why father walks the daughter down the aisle and hands her to her husband. Now she's yours, right? That's why the ring is worn. That's why she takes the last name. I mean, these are all echoes of this very deep vein in Western sexual relations. Call it good, call it bad, call it whatever, but it exists. And it has existed for a long time. So to pretend that by not talking about it and not acknowledging it, somehow it goes away is ridiculous. Um, He says, mindset is everything. We have more control over how we perceive reality than we're led to believe. Many people who consider themselves to be depressed are really just disempowered and hopeless. Labeling yourself a person with depression further disempowers you and pulls you into a world of being drugged in order to make you a better zombie. Well, that's fucking true. Now, he goes further and says he doesn't think that clinical depression exists. I don't agree with that. I think clinical depression does exist. I think there are people who have abnormalities of brain chemistry uh, that could lead to or could be associated with severe clinical depression for which medication is important. Um, But, you know, Casilda, my wife, uh, always said that she would give antipsychotics or or severe, um, severely clinically depressed people who were feeling suicidal, she would give them medications, but only to get them through the crisis so that then they could talk about, find cognitive behavioral approaches to the situation, but not ongoing medication for the rest of your life because you've got some brain abnormality. No. So I, I agree with that. So, Okay, I've been talking for almost an hour now. I'm going to wrap this up. But the point is that this guy is wounded. He's fucked up. He's coming from a place of humiliation and poverty and a father who didn't love him. And that our job, or at least as I see it, is that we only empower this stuff by prohibiting it. Now, there's a an expression that used to be, like when I was a kid, this was something people would quote with pride. This was a central pillar of 
the American political system and the culture that grew up around it. And I forget who said it, but it was like one of the founding fathers, one of the people who helped write the Constitution, I think. He said, I may vehemently disagree with what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Right? That was a central value of American culture. Freedom of speech. You may say something that is totally reprehensible, but because we're in America and because this country is founded on values that include freedom of speech and expression, I will defend to the right your death to say it. I mean, to the I will defend to the death your right to say it. Where's that gone? The wisdom of that is that all these things get expressed and people know how to separate the truth from the bullshit. People hone their critical thinking skills right that's that's what objectivity in journalism is supposed to do you present the facts and you let the reader figure out how those facts fit together and what to do about those facts well objectivity in journalism is gone now we have fox presenting their perspective we have msnbc presenting their perspective and y- you as a as an observer need to or as a, a recipient of this information you need to try to f- figure out what's bullshit coming from the journalist not just the situation itself and the idea that i will defend to the death your right to say something that offends me i don't know where that went but it seems to be gone we need the skill to separate the dancer from the dance, the artist from the art, the lyric from the music, right? There are a lot of songs that have a great melody and shitty lyrics. There are great lyrics with shitty music. That's just the way reality is. Some people are great musicians. They can't fucking convey any feeling. Other people are not great musicians, but they can convey deep emotion without having much technical skill to me sushi is beautiful but it tastes horrible there are gorgeous flowers that smell like decomposing meat we need to be able to disentangle content from packaging otherwise we're totally vulnerable to the tates and the trumps of the world who say some things that are forbidden yet true and thus win our allegiance to their hidden agendas when we think all we're doing is signing on to defend the truth. I think that's where we are. And I think the only way to deal with this is to return to the doctrine of you've got the right to say whatever the fuck you want and I've got the right to call bullshit on it or to ignore it or to agree with it. But I don't have the right to tell you you can't say it in the first place. I think that's where we're drifting. We've drifted into that. We're well into that. And it's a huge problem because, as I said, it empowers people 
who are willing to step up and say something that's true because it brings them attention. Of course it does. Because there's a lot of true things that nobody's talking about. And we need to be able to talk about true things, whether they're difficult, problematic, whatever. I mean, that's my whole shtick. That's why I do this podcast. That's why You're Gonna Die One Day is the song, the theme song of the podcast. It's because I think it's not just I get some visceral thrill of saying something that's forbidden and sitting here in my little computer feeling invulnerable because I can say this shit and nobody can fire me because I don't have a fucking job. I mean, yeah, there's ego fulfillment. There's all that. But the reason I do this is that I fucking worry about where we're going. And I think that a big propellant of the collapse that we're experiencing and the misery that so many people are experiencing is that with good intentions, God, good intentions, right? The the road to hell is paved with good intentions. With good intentions, people are trying to control language, conversation, perception of reality. And that is backfiring just as it always does. Covering your eyes doesn't make the world go away. Refusing to go to the doctor to investigate that lump is not going to make the lump go away. Denial doesn't work. It just makes things worse. You know, the metaphor that I've used in the past and, and that I always think of is is we act as if we're floating in a lake, but we're going down a river. And when you're floating in a lake, it doesn't really matter what direction you look because you're not going anywhere. But when you're floating down a river, you better turn and look downstream because there are rocks, there are snags, there are waterfalls, there are islands. You need to make decisions. And if you're not looking at reality because somebody's told you, you can't talk about that. If you're not investigating, analyzing arguments because someone said that's an illegitimate argument, you can't make that argument, you can't think about that, you can't listen to that person because they're saying something that we find offensive, well, then you're not going to, it's like you're floating down the river looking upstream. You have no control over where you're going. You can't defend yourself. And we need to all be capable of defending ourselves. We need to be capable of listening to someone like Andrew Tate and saying, yeah, he says some things that are true, but man, that guy, all the puffery, all the nonsense with the cars and the cigars and the women are bitches and don't know anything. Yeah, that's a sad guy. That's a sad guy who says some true things. Ernest Hemingway, you can say the same thing about him, right? Ernest Hemingway was Mr. Macho, bullfighter, big game hunter, whose mother called him Ernestina when he was born and treated him like a girl until he was five or six years old and had a crisis about masculinity. You see this everywhere. Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche is known as the philosopher of power, the Uberman, the superior man, you know, strength, power. He was a cripple. People who run around beating up gay guys, they're fucking closeted homosexuals. 
These preachers screaming about Jesus and Jesus, you know, smites the homosexuals. Yeah, they're going and and sucking dick after they get off TV. This is everywhere. This overcompensation, right? This public declaration of something that we don't believe privately. So if you can't see that and recognize it for what it is, then you become helpless. And by trying to cancel people and shame people who say things or who embody things that we find offensive, we're not strengthening society. We're weakening society. We're the equivalent of somebody who refuses to go to a doctor to look at that lump. I'm just not going to think about it. Well, that ain't going to help. That's an hour of me ranting. I'm not going to talk about this guy anymore. I really appreciate all the dialogue that this has engendered, but it's not about the guy, right? That's the whole point. So, you know, people say, yeah, but he's a rapist or he's a this or he's a that. Well, I don't know. I don't know the extent to which the women who were working for him were doing it voluntarily or not voluntarily. Um, but you know, the idea that you put somebody, you give somebody a job, you tell them what to do, a certain amount of revenue comes in from what they're doing, you take half of it and give them the other half. That's not criminal, that's capitalism, right? That is that is capitalism. Um, so whether he's guilty of this or that or the other, I don't know. And ultimately, I, I, I don't care. Uh, I think that the point is when someone who is offensive says something that's true, how do we deal with it? And I firmly come down on the side of saying, listen to them, let them say what they want to say and hone your ability, you know, to, to pick the rocks out of the beans. Um, we need to distinguish the package from what's contained in the package. And that's an essential cognitive skill. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for agreeing and disagreeing and for engaging one way or another. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately St. Augustine said it best, which is love and do as you please. If you're coming from a place of love, then I think it's pretty hard to fuck up in any substantive way. I don't think Andrew Tate is necessarily coming from a place of love. I think there's love in there, but it's wounded. Um, And I think that we need to understand that wounded animals are dangerous, but that doesn't mean you pretend they don't exist. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, sending out lots of love to you, and uh, I hope you're doing well, and I will be back shortly with um, a conversational podcast. Thanks. Here's Carsey Blanton reminding you to go to the doctor and have that lump checked out because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example
to the ground. 